Welcome to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. Each week, we interview top experts in physical therapy, pain science, and integrative pain care. You'll learn the most up-to-date information for treating and reversing persistent pain. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended to be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Tata. Hey there, welcome to this week's episode. Today we are exploring how to explain central sensitization to patients using pain neuroscience education with physiotherapist Ava Hausman. Ava graduated with a master's degree in physiotherapy and is currently in the middle of her PhD work. She is working on a randomized controlled trial investigating the effect of perioperative pain neuroscience education for patients undergoing surgery for lumbar radiculopathy. To date, Ava has co-authored over 20 peer-reviewed publications and a manual on pain neuroscience education for the clinician. Next to her research activities, she is working as a physiotherapist in the University Hospital of Brussels, where she helps people cope with chronic pain. During today's episode, you'll learn how to recognize central sensitization in clinical practice, how to objectively evaluate central sensitization, why people with central sensitization are not the only ones who need pain neuroscience education, all about the recently introduced term nociplastic pain, and finally, where does pain neuroscience education fit into a treatment program and how should it be delivered? Now, as I mentioned previously in Ava's bio, she has created manuals for clinicians to use pain neuroscience education. So as part of this episode today, she is providing you with a free download of a pain neuroscience education slide deck that you can use with your patients. To download this slide deck for free, all you have to do is text the word 169-DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. That's 169-DOWNLOAD to the number 44222. Or if you're on your computer, you can open up a new tab and type in the URL integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 169-DOWNLOAD. That's integrativepainscienceinstitute.com forward slash 169 download. Okay, let's begin and let's learn all about central sensitization with Ava Hausmans. Hi there, Ava. Thanks for joining me this week on the Healing Pain Podcast. It's great to have you here. Hi, Joe. It's my pleasure to be here. Yes, I know you do some great work in the realm of pain science. And of course, the topic we're talking about today is central sensitization, an important topic both for practitioners who are treating pain and as well as people who are learning more about pain, discovering what the potential cause of their pain is. Central sensitization has been built out in the literature, continues to be built out in the literature. First, tell us, to start us off, I think it's really important, just tell us what central sensitization is. Yeah, so I think for many clinicians, it's already clear what it is, but I will explain it very simply for more patients that are listening, maybe. So it's kind of a hypersensitivity that is due to changes that occur in the central nervous system. And... People who are experiencing central sensitization often have, for example, disproportionate pain, and they also can be very sensitive to other stimuli, noises, or even smells, etc. So yeah, it's a generalized hypersensitivity, actually, which is often linked to chronic pain problems. Excellent. So of course, central nervous system, there are aspects of peripheral sensitization that come into play as well, correct? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's correct. So peripheral sensitization is also seen in acute disorders. For example, when you sprain your ankle, you will see that the whole region around the sprain will also get kind of sensitive. And that's like a kind of sensitization that we have to protect those tissues to make sure they can heal in a good way and as fast as possible. So it's a very important thing, actually. And we also see peripheral changes in the nervous system in central sensitization. But on top of that, you will have the central adaptations that are going on in these patients. Yeah. Great. Excellent introduction. Thanks for that, because it helps, of course, inform the rest of the podcast. And of course, if there's someone listening who has chronic pain, it just helps them start to think differently about their pain and maybe reframe their pain away from just being a musculoskeletal problem toward being a challenge of the nervous system. As people are listening to this, they're saying, well, I have there's probably someone with back pain listening to this. There's probably someone with fibromyalgia listening to this, maybe someone with CRPS who's listening to this. What types of conditions and chronic pain syndromes has central sensation been associated with? So what you said, fibromyalgia is maybe the most known one together with chronic fatigue syndrome also. But also in, for example, chronic whiplash-associated disorders, you see central sensitization as a dominant pain type. In chronic low back pain, you would see that it's only a subgroup of patients who is showing dominant central sensitization. For example, also irritable bowel syndrome, which is kind of different, but also yeah, really characterized by this central sensitization mechanism, actually, an answer to your question, more or less. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's seen in a number of different mm-hmm. chronic pain syndromes, which is helpful for people. So you mentioned to start the episode off today, you mentioned and described central sensitization. Would you describe it in a different way to a patient who is maybe potentially asking you about So maybe they heard this episode and they say, hey, I heard you talk about central sensitization. I'm still not quite sure what it is. Would you describe it in a different way to a patient if you're working with them in the clinic? Yeah, definitely. I described it simply over here also, of course. So I would do it in a simple way that is, of course, understandable for the patient that is sitting in front of me. So maybe you get a patient with a kind of medical background, then you can go more in detail, of course. But central central sensitization is characterized by a number of physiological changes, which can get very complex because even we as clinicians and researchers We don't know it all. So for some parts, like, for example, the whole discussion with the pain neurometrics, we don't know whether there is a neurometrics or whether it's something else or it's maybe a lot more complex even. So it can get very complex when you want to explain it in detail. So that's not what you want to do with a patient, of course. The main thing is that patients should understand that there's more than just the biomedical part to pain so that you frame everything in a biopsychosocial framework. So what we would do is use metaphors and everything. So like daily life examples and often examples from the patients themselves to explain part of the mechanism. And then in the end, they would be able to get like the large picture about central sensitization. Yeah, we really try to do it low key just explain that there's hypersensitivity and that it's due to top-down mechanisms. 
which are controlled in one place in the spine, of course. And then you also have the brain, which is involved. And we explained that like kind of a computer that is processing all the inputs that is coming in, but can even start doing things by itself. And then you get the whole mechanism. So that's how we try to explain it. Yeah, very simply. And then for the practitioners who are listening, who are just learning about central senses, you know, want to kind of dive into a little bit more. On a systems level, so if you looked at the human body on a systems level, which systems does central sensitization affect? Or maybe the better way to frame it is which systems does it not affect, actually, because it can, of course, affect (laughs) many different types of systems. But the ones that we start to look at with regard to chronic pain were the major ones. Yeah, I don't know how much in detail that you want to go. So yeah, we are definitely looking at the neurological system. And not only the neurons, but also glia, for example, they seem to be involved in it. Then you have everything which is centrally located, but then also in the periphery. We're also looking at the sensors, the receptors, which are very distant from your central nervous system even. But there are also changes occurring, like the peripheral sensitization that we said So your receptors get kind of sensitized over there also. But what we're not looking at is, how would I say it's like when you have a case of nociceptive pain, then you would look at the peripheral tissues, like a muscle, for example. So that's not what we specifically will talk about in pain neuroscience education. It's really focused on the nervous system, actually. But it goes together also with endocrinological pathways, immunology, etc. So it's really a broad perspective, but I think all the musculoskeletal system is actually what you almost leave out of the story. Yeah. Yeah, which is so which is so interesting to me. I want to come back to it's a really yeah. important point. And I appreciate you bringing yeah. that up. But in general, so when we're looking at central sensitization, it affects the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. It affects the peripheral nervous system. It affects, you mentioned earlier the digestive system which mm-hmm. we know is home to our immune system. So it may yeah. affect the immune system both in the gut and you mentioned glia cells, which actually act like immune cells in the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. So your immune system is primed in some way, both centrally and peripherally. You mentioned endocrine. So there's HPA axis dysfunction that's happening, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is another central component that drives peripheral hormones. So hormones are related. And then earlier you mentioned the biopsychosocial model. So the psychosocial aspect you start to yeah. think of how it affects mood. So mm-hmm. anxiety, depression, ir- irritation, anger, irritability, all those are components. And then let's talk about the musculoskeletal system, which is so interesting because I always feel like the musculoskeletal system can be the way in kind of through yeah. the back door, yeah. which people don't think about. Why do we leave that out of many type of <laughs> pain neuroscience education perspectives? Yeah, I think that's originating in the fact that pain neuroscience education was created for the chronic pain patient, which comes into your practice with a body chart full of complaints, um, where you don't have any biomedical or biomechanical reason for this pain. So they had a number of investigations done in hospitals, etc. And they can't find anything, but they have a, a huge amount of pain. And that is how people started to explain pain. I think it originated with Louis Gifford, who started doing this and found something. And I think that's why, because in these people, the musculoskeletal is not that important anymore. 
It's a tricky thing to say right there. I'll just put yeah, that out yeah. there. <laughs> but I'm saying it to you and not to the patient, of yeah, course. Right, right. <laughs> now, it's because we cannot find that musculoskeletal origin for the pain that we want to focus on the nervous system there. But And that's also what I wanted to talk about to you later. I think it's very important to when you first see your patient to define whether this is a patient which is really dominantly characterized by the central sensitization pain type or nociplastic pain instead of nociceptive pain. Because in some patients, you can have a nociceptive input still going on, but they might be dominantly nociplastic pain. Mm -hmm. But then it's a totally different story, I think. And then you should incorporate a musculoskeletal system in your story that you're telling to the patient. So it's really depending on the patient, but when you have someone in front of you who is completely a nociplastic pain case and there's no nociceptive input at that moment of time, then I don't think you should focus on the musculoskeletal parts. Although they can feel like they have real musculoskeletal uh, complaints, like for example, stiffness in their muscles, or they can feel like their spine is blocked or anything. But then I think it's the key to explain them where it's coming from. And that's not there locally, of course. And what you said, like it can be the way indeed some people, like for example, um, the chronic whiplash associated disorders, they start with an acute injury and then it goes to central sensitization and no cyplastic pain. And in the end, they cannot see anything on MRI or whatever, and they keep on having complaints. So there's a shift, I think, at the importance of seeing it like a continuum and not just as something that occurs from day to day. Yeah. I want to come back to that topic of the musculoskeletal system and <laughs> just kind of tweeze that out a little bit more and get in the weeds of that. Before we do that, I just want to back up a car length. Because you mentioned both nociplastic pain mm -hmm. as well as nociceptive pain. Can you explain the difference between the two? And as you mentioned, is one occurring before the other? Yeah. So nociceptive pain is pain that is occurring from an acute injury or from tissue damage. So we would say that patients who are dominantly nociceptive pain, then their pain is proportionate to a certain tissue damage that is occurring in their body or a certain condition which is generating nociceptive inputs and which is processed in the right way. So that would be dominantly nociceptive pain. Nociplastic pain is then the pain type which is characterized by central sensitization. So what we see more in chronic pain patients, for example. And that's a continuum. So it could be an injury that leads to nociplastic pain. So nociplastic pain can also occur without a nociceptive pain type before or injury before. Right, because it's centrally mediated. Yes. Right, so things like emotions, thoughts, beliefs, that can be the driver mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. beautiful and important distinctions to make for both people with pain as well as practitioners so they can start to kind of weed that out. So if I'm a practitioner... How do I clinically differentiate between nociceptive and nociplastic pain? Yeah, I think first you want to, of course, listen to your patient. It's really important also to get the complete medical file of a patient, if that's possible. 
So you can see whether there has been some imaging, for example, or stuff that you can look at that it's maybe in the hospital or the doctor's office. So you can see the whole picture. Like I said before, often you have the impression that you can recognize central sensitization or nociplastic pain from the moment that a patient walks in your clinic. But that's, of course, not good. You should do a proper investigation with your patient, clinical examination. And we, with the Pain in Motion group, we kind of designed an algorithm for differentiating between nociceptive pain and nociplastic pain, which was published years ago. I don't remember the year, but it was a publication by Yones. And then in that algorithm, you would first look at whether the pain is disproportionate. So then you're looking at pain intensity. So is this patient showing higher pain intensity than what you would expect with a certain injury or condition that is going on in this patient? Of course, when there is nothing on medical imaging or nothing in all the previous investigations, and you can also don't find anything in your clinic with your clinical examination, and the patient is still showing a lot of pain, then you're sure that it's disproportionate, of course. And then if you have to say, no, it's not disproportionate, then you would already decide that it's no susceptive pain, so no central sensitization. If you decide then that the pain is indeed disproportionate, then you would have to look at the distribution of the pain. So you're not looking at pain intensity then, but really the anatomical regions where the pain is occurring at that uh, moment in the patient. If that's positive, then you can actually already conclude based on the algorithm that you're sitting in front of a patient with dominantly central sensitization or no cyclistic pain. If the pain is not diffuse, then you would want to do a central sensitization inventory in the patients. And if a patient scores above 40 or 40, then you can conclude again that it's central sensitization dominantly. Now, the central sensitization inventory, and so that's a questionnaire actually, which was designed to assess symptoms of central sensitization. So that's maybe good to tell already. Now, this algorithm, I use it personally in clinical practice, but I tend to not only use that algorithm, but also like listen to the stuff that the patient tells me additionally, like for example, hypersensitivity to different stimuli, maybe sleep disturbances. So I try to get a whole picture and then the algorithm can help me to make my final decision whether it's definitely dominantly nociceless pain. A small thing I want to add maybe here is that before you would differentiate between nociceptive pain and nociplastic pain, you would already want to have excluded dominant neuropathic pain. So that's an important thing that you should first exclude. And the most important ways to do that is looking at whether your pain distribution is neuroanatomically logical and do some neurodynamic tests. So it can be active or passively performed by the patient. But that's important to differentiate those before you go into a nociceptive pain. Yeah. Excellent. So we have a good idea of what central sensitization is, how we can explain it to a patient, all the different types of various systems and the systems biology that is included in that. You just went through pretty much the IASP mechanistic definitions of the three different types of pain, nociplastic, nociceptive, Mm -hmm. and neuropathic pain, which is important. And you talked a little bit how to evaluate it from a clinical perspective and figure out if it's nociplastic 
or nociceptive. Then, of course, all of our antenna is going to start to go up and say, okay, well, how do we treat this now? And pain neuroscience education has a number of high-powered studies proving its efficacy for fear, fear avoidance, as well as helping people function better in life, even some things with regard to mood. Tell us what pain neuroscience education is first for those who don't know what it is. Yeah, so it's basically just explaining what pain is to a patient. And you would want to do this from a biopsychosocial perspective. So that means that you're also going to talk about cognitions and beliefs, for example. What we also incorporate in pain neuroscience education are some specific things related to the patients or to the setting. So we call the whole package pain neuroscience education, but actually it's not all pain neuroscience, but it's definitely working on your pain neuroscience or targeting your pain neuroscience. So for example, in perioperative patients, we will also talk about the decision to have surgery, stuff like that. So what we try to do is use this information, this theoretical background that we have as kind of a start of the therapy for pain problems. So that's in a nutshell what pain neuroscience education is happening here. And clinically, are you just using it with people with pain or does it have a usefulness for other types of conditions and diagnoses? So like I said, it originated for people with chronic pain disorders. But what we see in research nowadays, and that's also where I'm currently doing research on, is that we try to apply pain neuroscience education to other populations also. For example, subacute and acute populations. I mentioned already the perioperative patients also. So those are still having pain, of course. But then you also see some studies popping up in, for example, primary school children. So they are going to give the content of pain neuroscience education to those children. And then it's a study by Adrian Lau, I believe. And they just measured whether the children were able to understand the content of pain neuroscience education and whether their knowledge on pain science effectively improved. But of course, it would be interesting if they could do a longer follow-up study to see in a large group of children whether they would develop less chronic pain issues later in life. So that would mean that we could give pain neuroscience education as a preventive matter even. But now at this moment, it's just important that we keep on doing it for the populations where we know that there's already some evidence-based practice available. Additionally to that, I think it's important for us as researchers and as clinicians that we try to communicate the message that we want to communicate, like really the biopsychosocial perspective to everyone in our neighborhood and just try to spread it as much as possible because one of the largest issues that we occur in practice is that people are really resistant against getting therapy from a biopsychosocial perspective. And that's just because in our current um, society, we are still living in a kind of a biomedical or biomechanical framework. And what we learn at school is also just the biomedical part. No one is teaching 
children at this point that when you have a depression, you will have higher pain intensities, for example. So it's really important that the general population is also getting this message because otherwise it will still be a, a restriction to our practice that we're trying to do. Right. So there's plenty of work to be done with the populations <laughs> we're working with currently that have pain, of course. It is interesting to see how it started to roll out into perioperative and preoperative populations, acute pain. And I think it's interesting with the children. I mean, in that context, it's really being used more as health prevention or health promotion, which like you mentioned, if we had a long-term study to see were those groups less likely to have chronic pain, it's really interesting to think about. But I think you're right. It, it, currently, we don't want to leave the millions of people by the wayside and just run to prevention, so to speak. We want to definitely obviously help the people who have chronic pain cope and overcome in many ways, the, the pain they're experiencing. Where does pain neuroscience education fit into, let's say a patient comes in with a prescription for physiotherapy twice a week for six weeks. How does a practitioner fit that into care? Let's say it, they have an hour for the evaluation and 30 minutes each treatment session. That's probably somewhat typical and standard globally. Um, yeah. So first, we here in Belgium, what we I will say how we do it, and then I will say how many people can do it, because there's a practical issue with the timing of consultations, I believe, in many countries. So in our clinic, we have a chronic pain rehabilitation program, which is very specific, but we try to give a session of one-on-one -on -one pain neuroscience education at the beginning of therapy. So like I said, it's for chronic pain patients. When you are sitting in front of an acute pain patient, for example, I don't think they would need an hour of pain or science education. Maybe they even don't need it. But in certain situations, I think it can also be useful. But in any case, I would give it at the start of your treatment. So because pain or science education is such a good way to really mold your patients into the best perspectives to start rehabilitation. And I think that's very important to get them well prepared so they also know what to expect. And then um, it will, of course, be important to keep communicating the same message during the rest of your therapy plan. So, for example, it's not good to have a one-on-one -on -one session pain or science education and then in the next session, you are going to do only manual therapy and you're going to say to your patient, I'm going to fix your back. That, that's not working, of course. So you can, of course, combine pain or science education with hands-on techniques like manual therapy. That's perfectly fine, but then you should communicate the why that you are doing those manual techniques. And like we know from research, we can stimulate our nociceptive inhibition by doing manipulation. So that's the way you would communicate it to the patient and they would understand it also because they had a pain or a science education before. Now, um, like you said, in many clinical practices, you would only have 30 minutes with a patient each uh, session. So we take one hour for pain or science education. And then another issue is that often the healthcare system or the healthcare insurances are not allowing you to give one whole session of education and not doing any hands-on techniques or any exercise training, for example. So you would have to do something actively also in your session with your patients. 
Um, so in that case, I would recommend to try to explain the key principles based on some very simple metaphors to your patients before you start your treatment. Mm-hmm. And then you start your active treatment or hands-on treatment whatever you want to do. And just during the treatment, keep on talking to your patient and try to give the right message. I don't think you have to explain really theoretical stuff during the rest of your treatments, because then, of course, if you're doing exercise therapy, then the patient should focus on these exercises and not on what you're telling. So it wouldn't be a great occasion to give theory to the patient, but just keep on communicating in the same perspective. Yeah, try to don't, how do you say it, give another message during the rest of the therapy that you're giving. Then maybe the next session that your patient is coming, you can again do 10 minutes pain neuroscience education and then you do the rest of the therapy. And also give your patient sometimes the opportunity to ask questions. Often when they ask questions, some inclarities pop up and then you can explain them. And so in the end, we'll be able to give the whole theoretical background, but then just spread it over several sessions. But I think in our case, the big advantage is that we can prepare the patient first completely from a mental and a psychological viewpoint even, and they would have the right knowledge to go further with treatment. And the next step in our treatment is an often for example, stress management or activity management. And when you're going to do such things, then it's really important that the patient got the pain neuroscience education background because otherwise they wouldn't understand why they have to do stress management or why they have to pace their activities, for example. So yeah, I think that's where it fits in a treatment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's really well said. I mean, so often patients are coming to physical therapists and other practitioners who treat pain, they have seen multiple practitioners, usually anywhere between five and 10. And they really just feel like they have been stuck struggling for years, if not decades. And the more they struggle, the more they sink and the smaller their life gets. And the more they try to flail around and find solutions to solve their pain, the more they just feel like they're stuck in one place with cement shoes and they're not going anywhere. Do you find that an hour of pain neuroscience education helps people kind of drop that struggle a little bit and relax that there may be hope for them? Definitely in some patients. I had many patients who were after the pain neuroscience education session saying like, you're the first one who understands my problems and who can give an explanation for everything that I'm feeling or that I have blaming about like a big part of my life, actually. And indeed, they often saw many practitioners before who were just treating them locally. And as we know, local treatments don't have the desired effects in patients with dominantly central sensitization issues. So yeah, I think for some patients, one hour session pain or science education really gives them an explanation And they feel like reassured in their own situation because there's finally someone who can talk to them and who can understand them. And that's also very important because, of course, with from the biopsychosocial viewpoint, um, you would want to explain the patients how important cognitions and feelings, emotions, etc. are in the whole story. But then sometimes patients start getting the impression that you're saying, yeah, it's all between your two ears. 
So that's not what you want to occur, of course, in a patient, because that's not what you're saying. The patients are really feeling pain. They are not imagining pain or anything. Um, they really feel pain. But I think it's very important that you can also stress the fact that pain is also a feeling, that they start believing that if they feel angry, it's something like they feel pain. So it's kind of the same, but feeling pain is very annoying, of course. So that's also what I try to explain to patients to make sure that they are not thinking that it's all kind of an imagined illness because don't want to hear that <laughs> um, in any case. And that's also not the fact, of course. What I wanted to say, I think some patients are really not ready for your biopsychosocial story. Um, they have been to so many practitioners looking for an explanation for their complaints. And then you are going to tell them that it's all in their heads and central nervous system. And they are really not pleased with it because they can feel the pain in their back and they can feel the pain in their legs. And there must be something wrong over there. And if they keep thinking in that perspective, then it's sometimes very hard to get them out and to get them along with your story, of course. So we can know that what we are saying is the best evidence nowadays, of course, but it's hard sometimes to explain that to a patient who has been told that there could be something wrong over there and there could be something wrong over there, etc. So when you are dealing with a patient that is really, really thinking biomedically, biomechanically, then pain neuroscience education might not be the best step in the first session, I think. Yeah. Yeah, really well said. I'm noticing that for some people, it can be a really validating experience for them where that education really seeps in as new learning and they're interested and it's eye-opening for them and it's hopeful for them. And then there's another group of patients where there's so much cognitive bias to overcome from years of really societal conditioning and conditioning through the healthcare system that it can be really tough to try to reframe, change cognitions, add new learning on top of that. And it's interesting because I think as practitioners, we're so excited about pain neuroscience education, but just like all the different types of cognitive behavioral therapies that came before it, they're averages of averages and they're always going to be groups and specific people that fall outside where you may say, well, this might not be the approach for them to try to help me change their pain-related beliefs, which ultimately is what P&E does. And for that group, they may need more of an ACT approach mm -hmm. where it's less about changing distorted cognitions about pain and more about behavior change in line with their value in life. And that may fit that person even more. So it's wonderful that we have so many tools to, to use. And sometimes these tools can run side by side where you can do an hour of P&E, which personally, I think everyone really could benefit from in some way, even if there's only partial reconceptualization of pain. And then if that's not fitting and you're seeing that they're a little bit resistant and there's not movement with that, then you move to something like a mindfulness approach or an ACT approach that is a little bit different. But I think some of the research you're doing, Ava, is just fascinating and it's really going to help inform all of our practice and of course help people with pain. Tell us what's, what's kind of new for you, what's coming up in 2020 for you, what are you working on? <laughs> Um, I'm currently about to publish, hopefully, if it's accepted, <laughs> a review of the relationship between 
cognitive and emotional factors and healthcare utilization. Um, and that's also what I want to look at in a population of patients undergoing surgery for lumbar adiculopathy. So we are currently running a large trial which provided pain or science education perioperatively to those patients compared to a more biomedically focused back school approach. And based on these data, I want to look at whether changing pain cognitions and beliefs about pain would also result in lower healthcare utilization post-surgery. That's hopefully what 2020 and 2021 will bring for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm really looking forward to it because I think it's even more important to find changes in these patients on behavioral outcomes like healthcare use and return to work, for example, which are obviously also of high socioeconomical impact for the patients themselves, but also for society. Then that you would look at pain outcome measures, for example, because I think there's kind of a consensus by now among pain researchers that pain might not be the holy grail that we are looking for, but it might be more outcomes like quality of life and behavior, functioning, etc. And I think that's also very important that we in the future try to focus more on these outcomes as primary outcome measures instead of always looking at pain intensity because when you look at patients in clinical practice that's basically also what you see and they might keep on experiencing pain but they might be functioning way better and have way better quality of life i think that's a lot more important than the fact that sometimes they have pain intensity of eight out of ten so ultimately, we want people's quality of life to improve. And when, yeah. when someone's quality of life improves, their mood improves, everything really tends to get better. And I always say, in many ways, we're putting the cart before the horse and we're looking for pain relief. Then someone's life gets better. I always talk to people, I'm like, I want to see your life get better first. I want you to re-engage gently and slowly and compassionately with some of the things that you love in life. And then with that, oftentimes, pain relief will be the outcome. But ultimately, living a full life is really what, kind of what we're looking for. So as we move into 2020, we'll, of course, keep our toes and fingers crossed to hopefully that great research you're working on will be published. Please come back and talk to us about that research once you publish it. But in the meantime, let everyone know how they can follow your work and learn more information about you. Yeah, so updates on my work and the work of my colleagues, of course, can be found on the website Pain in Motion. So that's www.paininmotion.be. And we are also very active on uh, social media. And I'm one of the social media managers of Pain in Motion also. So I'll make sure that my research is also shared on the social media. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just on, under the name of Pain in Motion. Excellent. So I want to thank Ava for joining us today, talking about central sensitization and pain neuroscience education. Really awesome information here, whether you're someone who has chronic pain or whether you're a practitioner looking to serve your patients more. Of course, make sure to follow Ava and all her colleagues' work at the Pain in Motion website. It's paininmotion.be. It's paininmotion.be. And of course, follow them on all their different social media handles. I'm Dr. Joe Tata. Thanks for joining me this week on the Healing Pain Podcast. Make sure to tune in next week. Take care. For listening to the Healing Pain Podcast with Dr. Joe Tata. To subscribe to the podcast and learn more, visit IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. That's IntegrativePainScienceInstitute.com. 
sign up to receive weekly updates, leave a review on iTunes, and share this episode with your friends. 